Our Old Testament reading for today is Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 22. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go to a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You, sh you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Well, what's in a name? Why are uh, names so important? So a couple weeks ago, I joined the rest of the world and saw the latest Star Wars movie. Some of you will find a lot wrong with what I'm about to say, but that's okay. For Star Wars fans, uh, I've learned that names mean a lot. So depending on what name a Star Wars character has, even if it's like a generated name you can make on the internet, you can discern from that name whether that thing, that character, is human or not, or whether it's a, a Wookiee or a droid or what galaxy it originates from. And I might have just made a lot of heresies in the Star Wars universe, but I don't care. You get what I mean. Because we understand that in our own world too, right? Your name gives away a lot about you. So if your last name is Chang or Martinez or O'Leary, kind of have a pretty good guess as to where your family ultimately originates from. But at an even deeper level, 
our names begin to become synonymous with who we are, don't they? Our names begin to represent us, our reputations, our character. Our names become everything. What about God? I mean, many people talk about God. So you've probably heard Muslims and Jews and atheists use this word God. Are they all talking about the same person? Or does God have a more particular name? Well, in our passage from Exodus this morning, God reveals his name to Moses. He says there in the middle of the passage, this is my name forever. But before we dig in and see that name, let's refresh ourselves because it's been a little bit of a while since we were in Exodus together. So you may remember that Exodus is about God's people, Israel, in Egypt about 3,400 years ago. Uh, Israel is in slavery to Egypt and have been for about centuries, for centuries at this point. But in chapter 2, as we considered a few months ago, we are introduced to an Israelite boy named Moses, who is miraculously spared death and becomes part of Pharaoh's household. It's a big turning of the tables, as Pharaoh wants to kill all the Israelite boys, and yet one Israelite boy is raised in his house. Not as an, Egypt, as an Egyptian, but not being an Egyptian. And as we came to the second half of chapter 2 a few months ago, we saw Moses all grown up and, and trying to come to grips with who he really is and where his allegiance really lies. And, and we see him go out of the, the palace and being confronted with a fellow Israelite being oppressed unjustly by one of the Egyptian taskmasters. And we see Moses take things into his own hands as sort of like an impulsive fit of rage, and he, he murders the Egyptian. Not a great move as we see. He becomes a fugitive of the law. Uh, he escapes to a place called Midian, and his kind of one-handed, unilateral attempt to save his people fails miserably. But, but the last time we were in Exodus in late November, we saw Moses, after 40 years in Midian, confronted by a burning bush. And we left off that passage with God giving Moses a message in chapter 3, verse 10, saying, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Egypt, the land where Moses had been raised, the land of his people's bondage, the land from which he had fled as a murderer, is now the land God is sending him back to as the deliverer. And as Moses hears this, he's got questions. And God's got answers. We'll see that over the next few studies in Exodus. But today, we see God, Moses has questions, and God has answers particularly about God's name. So from the passage Megan read for us, let's see two things. God is a self-existent God, and God is the covenant-keeping God. The first, God is a self-existent God. Look there in verse 11. Moses has been confronted face-to-face -face with God's white-hot holiness in this burning bush, and, and now he begins to respond. And the first thing he says is, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, this is a humble saying by Moses, but it's also kind of a doubtful saying. He's wondering if God's got this right. I mean, you have the wrong guy, Lord. You could have picked much better. I mean, I know I was born in Egypt and raised in the Pharaoh's house, but... The old Pharaoh wanted to kill me. I'm a lawbreaker. And now I've been a shepherd for four decades. Kind of lose my touch. And we see even more in the next chapter, 
Even more reasons why Moses thinks he's incredibly inadequate. But look at how God responds in verse 12. And this is so characteristic of God. He kind of ignores what Moses just said. And he says, I will be with you. Moses says, I'm not the right guy. And God says, I will be with you. Uh, so even if all Moses can see is his glaring incompetence, God sees a deliverer through whom he can work his plan. And one commentator points out, like, I didn't see this before as I was reading the passage, but it's true. God, God doesn't try to address even what Moses had just said. He doesn't try to prop up his belief in himself and say, come on, Moses, you got this? We're together, right? Don't talk like that. He doesn't even bother to address Moses' inadequacy because I think it's that obvious. But what God does do is promise his presence. The same commentator writes, Moses said, Lord, I'm not adequate. And the Lord said, no, but I am. And so, church, we see here yet again something we'll see throughout Exodus, that God is patient and faithful to weak, sinful people. So there in verse 12, God promises Moses a sign that's still to come in the future. He says eventually he will lead Moses and his people back to that very same mountain. And when that happens, Moses will become fully convinced that God was right, that God had sent the right man, that God had sent him. We'll see that promise fulfilled in whole in Exodus 19. But for now, let's focus on Moses' second question. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? I, I remember uh, growing up uh, and using that, answering that phone in my parents' house with the 30-foot cord and no caller ID, so you didn't know if it was like that person that kept calling you didn't want to talk to. And you'd pick up and be like, can I talk to so-and-so? And you'd say, who may I say is calling? You know, I was a polite little kid. That's, that's not quite what Moses is doing here. I think we can read that and be like, oh, he doesn't know God's name. He's saying, who may I say is calling? But God's already introduced himself to Moses in early chapter 3 as the God of Abraham. What's, what's God asking, what's Moses asking God for? Remember what we said at the beginning, and something that was definitely true in the, the ancient Near East. A name communicated more than just a title for a person. It communicated the nature of a person. And so it seems Moses isn't just asking God for his title. He's asking him for his nature. Who are you, Lord? Well, God answers in verse 14. He says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. It's not about Moses's strength or his name recognition as this messenger to Egypt. It's about the strength in the name of the one sending him, and that one is called the I Am. Okay, so what does that mean? It sounds a bit obscure. Maybe like me, you've read this passage before and just kind of like kept reading because it seemed a little weird. But let's stop and think. What does God mean here? I think he means exactly what he says. He uses the Hebrew verb to be, and he says that's his name. He applies it to himself. He says, who am I? I am who I am. But 
age-old quote from Shakespeare, right? To be or not to be. It's always to be with God. God is saying to Moses, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Great. Okay, still unclear. I mean, what exactly is God trying to communicate by this bewildering statement? Church family, I think God is revealing his very nature to Moses. He's revealing himself as totally different from any Egyptian god Moses had ever seen. He's revealing himself as the one who is, who is completely self-existent, completely self-sufficient, completely independent, completely God. What one author calls this the isness of God. He is the basis of reality. He is the essence of existence. Get that? If you're looking at me quizzically right now, wondering how you've all of a sudden been time warped back to your philosophy class, you're in good company. Even the great scholars of the Bible for the past 3,000 years have looked at this passage and eventually shaken their heads. It's enigmatic. It's mysterious. It's glorious. There's a level to this statement by God that just goes beyond our comprehension. I love how Tim Chester puts it. He says, this is a statement deliberately designed to burst our definitions. So if Moses ever thought, or if you and I have ever thought, if we've ever believed, we have God defined. We have him wrapped up nicely in a cute little box. We have him all figured out. This passage then comes along and blows up that cute little box into a million pieces. God is so much more infinitely complex and beautiful than we have ever realized. Alec Matier says, I am who I am is without doubt an enigmatic statement and conceals at least as much as it tells. It is an open-ended assertion of divine sufficiency. In other words, he's saying God is laying out here the truth that he is completely complete, completely enough. He, he is not in need of anything outside of himself. And the way that he's choosing to communicate that to Moses is by this word, to be, by this word, I am. That's who he is. If this feels a little heady to you right now, welcome to my week. It's fine. I, was, I hadn't thought this hard for a long time. But one way I found it helpful to try to think about what this means is by considering my own life. And I hope that's the same for you. So, so think about it. As I consider my life, as you consider yours, our lives are so contingent on so many things, right? Our lives are contingent on the purity of the air we breathe, uh, the quality of the food we eat, the reliability of the shelter we live in, the, the sustaining of laws of gravity and physics that hold our planet together, the, the movement in and out of our lungs and the beating of our hearts. We could go on and on and on because the list goes on and on and on of all the ways we are contingent beings. 
Uh, We are creatures constantly in need of something outside ourselves. I mean, that's why we worry, right? If we didn't have to worry about being dependent on anything else, then we wouldn't worry. 100% of our anxiety is because we are dependent people. By our very nature, we are those who need. Even those among us who like to call ourselves self-reliant. You'll recognize that those people still need you. They need your affirmation. They need you to tell them how great they are. Right? We are all needy people. And so now, church, with that in mind, contrast God. He is completely not like that. He needs no one. He is not reliant on any law of nature, any whim of man, any other force. He alone exists because he exists. He is. He always has been. He always will be. He he will not fall apart if something outside of him falls apart. Remember a few weeks ago in John 1, we we looked at the passage from Hebrews where it says that Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the very word of his power. That's who God is. The old preacher S.M. Lockridge once said, you can't outlive him and you can't live without him. That's our God. We, We can't fully grasp that. It's beyond what we can fathom. It's like being out on a boat in the middle of the deepest part of the ocean and trying to use a more archaic measuring device to to sound the depths of the ocean floor and not being able to reach it. God's nature is unsearchable, it's immeasurable, it's unfathomable. You and I change a lot. Like every single minute of our lives, something about our biology or our mentality is shifting. Not so with God. You and I, there's always something outside of us that threatens our existence, right? Like something could happen in this room right now and we would all not be who we are right now, right? God is not like that. He's never known what that kind of threat is. He's a self-existent one. He is, regardless of what else is. He is. The four living creatures in heaven say in Revelation chapter 4, and we sang this earlier, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. The I Am. This God is the everlasting, ever-existent, ever-eternal, ever-powerful, ever-knowing, ever-supreme, ever-sovereign God. And so you can't ever exaggerate him. You know, if you, like, talk to somebody else and you're talking about your, one of your favorite people and they're like, okay, you're exaggerating a little bit. It's just impossible to do that with God. He's in a different category. He's not in a category. That's who he is. But that's not all he reveals to Moses here. So he reveals himself as this self-existent I am. But secondly, he reveals himself as the covenant-keeping God. So in verse 14, as we've seen, uh, God has revealed himself to Moses as this I am. And that Hebrew word, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, uh, used for that verb I am is the the verb to be, right? I am to be, first person. 
But that word sounds a lot like the word God uses for his name in the next verse, in verse 15. So God continues his instructions for what Moses should say when he gets back to Egypt, and he says, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So God first tells Moses, Go tell my people I am sent you. And now he says, go tell my people the Lord sent you. What's the difference? The, the Hebrew words for I am and the Lord there are almost identical. They're very similar. Some believe, and I think it's possible, that they're rooted in the same origin. They're the same word ultimately. And, and that word translated the Lord in your Bibles, kind of the, the uppercase L and the smaller uppercase O-R-D, all caps, that name represents the Hebrew name Yahweh, or Jehovah. And this is God's personal name. It's the name of the God of the Bible. So, so far in Genesis, he's been called a lot of different things, but those are just titles, like God Most High, God Almighty. Those are ways to describe God, but here he reveals his personal name, which he's done before in Genesis. But here he kind of defines it. He says, I am Yahweh. And my name, Yahweh, it seems linked to those words that he said were, I am. How? Well, it's kind of a, a mystery. Shocker, right? This whole sermon feels like a mystery to this point, doesn't it? What it seems like God is doing is he's revealing to Moses his name and his nature all in one. They're intimately connected. His name represents his nature. This is an easy way to think about it. I'm, not, I'm sure it breaks down at some point. But my last name is Baum. And in German, that means tree. You know, Baum, the Christmas tree, right? Tree. Yahweh means I am. I, I'm sure that analogy is inconsistent at some point because he's God. But, but what I mean is God's name and his nature are inseparable. His name means who he is. And so think about what that means. So when God says there in verse 12, I will be with you, he's using his name. I am. I will be with you. He's showing that his promise to be with his people and deliver them rests in the reality of who he is, in his name his very nature. And so he's saying, I will be with you because that's who I am. Keeping my promise to you, Moses, is fundamental to who I am. If I break my promise, I'm no longer God. This personal name for God is this personal name he has to show his covenant-keeping nature. Because Every time he says, I will, he stakes his name on it. God has reached out in mercy over the millennia to, to keep his covenant with his people, to save his people, to deliver us, to show us mercy, and his name communicates that faithfulness to us. His name shows us his nature and how he doesn't change, how he will never forsake his promise because he cannot cease to keep his promise because he cannot cease to be who he is. 
His name. He can't stop being Yahweh. He can't stop keeping his covenant. Just as he had been faithful to Abraham, so he would be faithful to Moses. And just as he had been faithful to Moses, so he will be faithful to us. He doesn't change. So Yahweh is God's personal name that points us to two very different things that make up the character of God. His self-existence and his self-sacrifice. His power and his grace. His complete self-sufficiency and his giving of himself to us. His transcendence his aboveness and his imminence, his nearness, Yahweh. And church, God does not change. A.W. Pink writes, there is no wrinkle upon the brow of eternity. Our, our foreheads begin to show our age, right? There are no wrinkles on the forehead of God. He remains the same because he's Yahweh. That's his name. And Yahweh, this one who revealed himself and his nature to Moses 3,500 years ago, is the same God who we meet to praise this morning on January 7, 2018. He hasn't changed. Because his nature and his covenant keeping are rooted in his name. He still exists independent of anything else. He is still the covenant-keeping God who will keep his promises to save his people. Because look, he, he staked his name on it. I will deliver you out of slavery. And he did. And that was, that was just a glimmer of a promise he staked his name to for an even greater deliverance. The, the salvation he would accomplish through his son, Jesus. In Christ, God would send the greater Moses, this greater deliverer who would rescue us, his people, out of slavery. Slavery to sin and death and Satan. God kept his promise to save when he sent Christ. And so, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what the Bible teaches God to be like. We do not think he's like us, just a better version. Stronger, better. No, he's completely unlike anything we can ever imagine. He bursts our definitions. But we also understand that he loves us more than we can ever comprehend. He sticks his name to it. The good news is that he loved us so much that while we were rebels against him, he sent his son. Remember what Joe read for us earlier in the service from John chapter 8. So the book of John, Gospel of John, took place over a thousand years after this burning bush encounter in Exodus. Uh, Jesus has taken on human flesh. He's on earth. And he's speaking to his Jewish opponents who are just outraged by him and his claims to be God. And, and so they start digging into their heritage. They talk about Abraham, you know, this God of Abraham who appeared to their father Moses. And they they ask him, do you think you're greater than him? You don't think you're Abraham, do you? You're not that crazy. And, and then in verse 57 of John 8, they're just flabbergasted. They just spout out, 
okay, Jesus, you're not even, you're not even 50 yet, and you've seen Abraham? <laughs> you're crazy. They're doubting Jesus' identity. So how will Jesus respond? Uh, what's one way that Jesus can kind of just be like, no, this is who, this is my identity? 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When I read that, I get chills up and down my spine. I mean, those, those words must have just kind of ricocheted and resounded with deafening pitch into the ears of those Jewish leaders. Because Jesus was saying something incredibly clear. He was saying, I am God. I am the self-existent one. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. And they understand it clearly because they pick up stones and try to murder him. How dare he? How dare he blaspheme the name of God like that? The most blasphemous thing was yet to come. Because Jesus hadn't just come to show them his godness. He'd come to take on their humanness. He'd come to die in their place to save them from their slavery. The I am, the self-existent one, had become flesh. The I am, the almighty one, had become a weak man in a finite world. The I am, the pure and holy one from eternity past, had come to be sin for us. If you don't know Jesus, that's who he is. That's why he's so beautiful. He's God come to take on the sins of anyone who would trust in him. He's God who came to live and obey his father like you and I should have done and then die under God's judgment like you and I should have died. And he offers salvation to you this morning. Will you take it? He will take your sin on himself. Will you turn to him? If you have questions about that, talk to the person sitting next to you or talk to me afterwards. We would love to tell you more. And brothers and sisters, Christians, what should we take away this morning? I think we should take away the, the fact that God hasn't changed. He still is self-sufficient sufficient and self-existent, that he still doesn't need you. And yet he still loves you with an everlasting love that will never fade away. You see, as we read the rest of this passage, which we haven't gotten into this morning because it's a preview of the story to come, uh, we see Moses going back to Egypt, approaching the Israelites, going to Pharaoh's presence, seeing God's wonders, but we see it all predicated by God's statement, I promise. I am, I am who I am. I will be with you. We see all of this orchestrated by this perfect great I am. And then we're reminded that the same conductor of that great symphony is the conductor of our lives. He still is. And so, Christian, do you trust him? 
Are, are you willing not just to file this passage away as some extra information to pad your intellectual knowledge of the divine, look smarter than other Christians, but are you willing to let this God rule your life? You can trust him. Because his name is his nature. He's promised. He will be with you. He's utterly beyond your comprehension and utterly present with you in your weakness. Will you trust him? When you sin, when you screw up mightily, Christian, where will you go? Will you need to sort of kind of distance yourself from God and detox before you go back to him? Christian, when you have a great need, where will you go? Well, will you exhaust other resources before you turn to him? When you need rest, where will you go? Well, will you try to dull your senses with entertainment before turning to him? Christian, feast your souls on the nature of God, the nature of your God, the nature of the one who has promised to save. And this week, in this year, don't hesitate in all your mess, in all your inadequacy, to go to that God, to trust him as your self-existent, covenant-keeping God. He will never change. Let's pray. Holy God, this was a passage that needed a little bit more work for us. This is a passage about your nature, and we just can't comprehend it. But Lord, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you that you are so much greater than we can ever imagine. Because while this passage leaves us a little perplexed and a little mind-blown, it leaves us so grateful that we're yours. We pray that you would get glory in our lives. Jesus, thank you that you are the great I Am, the King who was the Lamb sacrificed for our sins. So as we sing now to you, the great I Am, we give you glory. We ask that you come back soon, and until then, keep us as we trust in you. Amen.